Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. I am Joshua Cohen, and I'm a writer. I'm Jed Pearl, and I'm a writer and art critic. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. The reason the church or the king or the prince turns to the artist is because the great artist can do something that, in fact, escapes from the tight definitions. In other words, a great stained glass window has a, its own kind of crazy power. In order to survive as a creative person, kind of in, in the very, you know, compressed capsule history of this idea, it, it, there needs to be a either a willful or, say, a conscious or an unconscious misunderstanding or a, a, a wounding of, of the tradition so that your writing or your work could be the correction of it. And then that allows you a space for originality. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's pairing, Jed Pearl and Joshua Cohen. A prominent art critic since the 70s, Jed just published a new book, Authority and Freedom, A Defense of the Arts, that asks a provocative question for our times. Does art have to be political to be significant? And if not, what are the rubrics we may want to judge art by? And Josh recently put out a much-talked-about novel, The Netanyahus, which fictionalizes the famous Israeli family. Its tone is comic. The subtitle is An Account of a Minor and Ultimately Even Negligible Episode in the History of a Very Famous Family. But it challenges our ideas about history and its intersection with politics, religion, and culture in general. Jed and Josh, thanks so much for being here today to talk about your respective books, Authority and Freedom and the Netanyahu's, the subtitles of which I will not be using in this uh, conversation uh, because they will be in the introduction, but are long and, and uh, or at least one of them is, is too long and it would be embarrassing only to use one subtitle and not the other, The Defense of the Arts. But I thought that to, to sort of frame the conversation, Jed, it might be nice for those people who are coming to this not having read the book yeah. and hopefully will read the book for you to talk a little bit about where you're coming from, how the idea came to you, why you're writing the book now, and potentially how this relates to larger ideas that you've been grappling with. I've been writing about the arts and thinking about the arts for decades and decades. And when I started, and in a way I started in college, and I'd been lucky, I came from a liberal, very cultivated academic family where music and paintings and books were the air we breathe. And I always took it for granted that the arts were really important. So it, I, I didn't have to question why they were important. They just were. They were as important as politics or thinking about the social world. They were just, they were part of the air we breathe. And I, I never doubted that. And I became an art critic and I mostly write about the visual arts, but I wrote some about literature. But as the decades went on, and I found myself writing for magazines where 
the whole world of culture and politics was included. I wrote for, I was, for 20 years, I was the art critic at the New Republic. And I began to feel that it wasn't enough to just say the cultural world, the arts are important. I had to answer the question, which I guess became a question in my own mind, why are they important? And that led me to try to think about how can it be that a painting or a piece of music or a piece of literature that has no clear or immediate relationship with the political or social or economic world we live in, how can it be that these things feel so incredibly important to us? And I began to feel that within the arts, there are these sort of enormous issues that are profoundly human issues, which in this book, which is called Authority and Freedom, I've tried to sort of encapsulate with this duality that any artist, whether you're a singer or a composer or a painter or a poet, begins by having this awareness of the authority of a tradition. And that's very basic. Like most paintings are on rectangles. You don't have to do a painting on a rectangle, but most are. A story, when you think about a story, a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And creative people, in whatever area of the creative world they go into, they embrace that. But then they have to figure out who they are within that. And it seems to me that fundamental kind of tension between what the world gives us, the past, the authority of culture and tradition, and then how what we do with that, that's a profoundly urgent and deep thing for all of us. And I think that's what makes the arts uh, this kind of important world that we go to and that we find kind of revelations and release in, even when there, we can't track any immediate relevance between what we're experiencing there and in the wider world. Mm. And that's, so that's kind of the, the idea that came to seem very important to me. And I think it's an idea that's important as a kind of pushback at this point. Mm. We're living in a, just a time of unbearable political and social and economic and ecological crisis. I, I mean, it's as desperate a time, if not more desperate than the 1930s. Mm. And at times like that, people tend to reach to the arts for these kind of simple solutions and answers. They want this arts to be part of the big battle. Mm. But I think it's very important to insist that the arts have other kinds of roles mm. to play in our lives. I was going to say, the first question for you, Josh, based on that would be, you know, your relationship to the question of authority and tradition in particular in your work. And of course, What's interesting about the Netanyahu's, which is something that we've spoken about, is that it's very much a, a Jewish novel, but not a safe one. It's not like anyone comes out on top or anything. You know what I mean? You, I think you, you put it somewhere when we were speaking. It's not like, you know, there's a, a, a wonderful ending to the novel because of who enters and how they enter. And I'm curious how you relate both to the idea of any form of responsibility or being kind of brought into a political discussion and also this sort of, I think, the deeper question about tradition and, and as a creative person, how you find yourself working within and against tradition. 
So, so simple questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Only, okay. Yeah. only simple questions. I mean, I will say that the, this novel is the, the most maybe explicit of my books to deal with ideas of, of what I was calling, you know, after Harold Bloom, who is kind of the source of the anecdote on which the book is, is based, would call influence. Right. And, you know, everyone can kind of look up their own Wikipedia version of Harold's theory of, of influence. Right. But it, it, to my mind, it, it really is about seeing the past as you begin developing as a creative person and, and feeling crushed by the weight of the past and being unable to make something original, knowing how much has come before you. And, and in order to survive as a creative person, kind of in, in the very, you know, compressed capsule history of this idea, it, it, there needs to be a, either a willful or say a conscious or an unconscious misunderstanding or a, a, a wounding of, of the tradition so that your writing or your work could be the correction of it, mm. right? And then that allows you a space for originality. And, and it's interesting, you know, you know, what I took from, for example, you know, Jed's book was I hear in it some of the, a formalist version of a theory of influence, mm. as well as a political kind of theory of influence. And for my own purposes, I, I tend to think that the influence that I find to be most difficult, uh, but also enriching, isn't anything founded in identity. Uh, certainly isn't, I, I think, anything in being Jewish, because it's very easy to be Jewish. You just wake up, right. right? The influence that I find to be difficult and the anxiety that I find with the tradition is actually the tradition of reality, right? And where I have to make a work that sort of stands next to reality. And especially when you're making narrative work and you're against the narrative of reality, I have enormous anxiety about what I can accept as real, what I can think is real within the minds of my readers. When I change things, the reason why I change things is it because I am shrinking from mm. a certain authority or am I trying to correct it? And that, that in my mind has become the, let's say my greatest antagonist. When you say narrative. It's a pretty of... big antagonist. <laughs> I mean, I just, it's interesting you bring up Bloom's theory of um, influence, which I thought about a lot when I was working on authority and freedom. And I think Bloom makes the mistake of making influence too much of this kind of very tight psychological mm. edible thing. And there may be aspects of that mm. for creative people, but the, the thing I think that's missing in his theory is a sense, which I think is very important, that the authority of a tradition is, is a very expansive thing. Authority is not the same as authoritarian, mm. okay? The authority of a tradition is something that, that lots and lots of people share. And I think by a creative person going into the tradition of the novel, there are endless possibilities, actually, you know? And I think Bloom makes it this very tight thing, whereas I, I guess I see the experience as more e expansive in a way and I, I think that's part of what people sense when they listen to music or read up. It's like the individual novelist is kind of going into this thing which has endless possibilities mm. and where do you land. And of course, you in your writing have gone to different aspects of that world at different times. I mean, when I, when I read the Nantanyahu's, I wrote to you and said, well, it's your opinion. Me, like Nabokov's academic right. novel was opinion. This is your academic novel. Right. That's, I mean, that's a tradition, but you've done other novels, you know, books that have, that are very different 
touch on different aspects of this vast world of what the possibilities of the novel storytelling are. You know, I was, I really enjoyed that you brought up Hannah Arendt and Isaiah Berlin when you kind of get right. into the definition yeah, yeah, of authority. Yeah, yeah. And I was wondering if you, if we could talk a little bit more about that kind of the authority versus authoritarian, because when I think about some of culture right now, it feels like the notion of authority as the foundation or the tradition right, right. gets supplanted sometimes by something that seems more topical, right? Something that right. is more of the moment, whether it's the authority of a question around identity or a question around where one is literally from or being of a re one religious group or another. And, and I'm sort of wondering if that's part of what you're teasing out in that book, that there's a, a risk there of not taking the deeper sense of authority, right. the foundational sense of authority yeah. seriously yeah. enough. Well, and also, I mean, you get, I think you get caught, you know, I think there's an authoritarianism in the arts on the left and the right. Okay. I think there's a problem on both ends. And I actually, you know, I was, I, I talk a little bit about the, the great T.S. Eliot essay, Tradition, the Individual Talent. And I think he makes tradition too authoritarian there. Right. It's like, there's this one thing, you know, Shakespeare and Dante fit in. The, the, there's like this one thing you can be when you're really great, which right. seems ridiculous to right. me. Right. 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 I right. mean, I just think there's so many great things yeah. that are so different. And what do they hold in common? Well, what Hannah Arendt says is authority is some kind of complex of ideas or values that a v wide number of people over a period of time have come to agree on. It's not like one, you know, central kind of glob of something. It's this range of things. Right. And I think that's what makes the art so, so kind of open really. And I think there's a danger on both ends of shutting them, of, of shutting them down yeah. too much. Josh, I was wondering if you would talk a little bit, if there, as an artist, if there were moments or works in particular that weighed heavily on you, I mean, this, in this book, but just in general, like an illustration, so to speak, of this question of battling with the tradition or navigating it or finding yourself fluid within the tradition. Yeah, I mean, I think for every book, I kind of assemble my little, you know, rat heap canon that I, I, and I tell myself that these, you know, the books that I'm drawing from are associated in some way, but probably the only way in which they're associated is through the book I'm writing. You know, with this, it was certainly, you know, the, maybe the most superficial part of it was the kind of mid-century novel is written by, you know, Jews in America. But the, and, and people, frankly, of, and the passing of people of, of Bloom's generation and the generation, you know, slightly earlier and slightly later. So anyone from, you know, Bellow to, to Roth. Mm -hmm. And, and so, but I think that the deeper one and the thing that I found really fascinating because that was a world that I was pretty well versed in already was reading about history and historiography. Mm -hmm. And because Benzio Netanyahu, who's the protagonist of one of the protagonists of the, of the novel, he was a historian and, but he was a deeply politicized historian and it was a, and so it was really kind of looking at various schools of historiography as a fiction writer that, that I found to be, first of all, very, really fascinating, you know, this sort of the idea that historians almost I mean, I, I, when I first encountered, you know, Braudel and this idea that, you know, one can write in a way that the, from the Burkhardt tradition through Braudel, where you can write in a way that brings out the spirit of the time, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. right? And not just necessarily follow dates and facts and figures, nor to be a servant to power, which is what pre-enlightenment history writing is, right? But you get into the everyday lives of people. You begin talking about the feeling of the age, the feeling of the landscape, the feeling of geography, and how every aspect or every choice made in that writing has a sort of political valence, mm. right? And I remember kind of like reading some of these works and reading some criticism of these works and saying like, oh, that's fairly late in history for this to be the new way of writing it. Mm. Because a lot of these decisions that these historians are making are novelistic decisions, mm. you know, finding metonymy, finding, you know, synecdoche, bringing out a tiny detail in a tiny person's life and finding within that the spirit of the age. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I was really interested in 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 how in how history writing uh, evolved and then beyond that i was interested in 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 this very odd you know i don't like calling the discipline you know psychohistory but this very interesting discipline of historians who doubt history huh. which is this idea that you know history can't be written it's like an it's it's a like an apophatic and negating discipline mm -hmm. and yet we do it anyway and that seemed to be inherently novelistic <laughs> you know, in its sense of futility and failure sometimes. Yeah. And, but this idea of having to kind of make an account for the past and to make an account of the past that is authoritative in some way, but based on really individual decisions about what to bring out and what to suppress in a way, or what yeah. to highlight and what to put in the background, you know, that, that to me became really fascinating. And it also was the way out, frankly, of writing a book that was explicitly with a political message. Right. Right. You know, to be, it, because I began with history and how history is written, it kind of saved me from writing a book that was like, here's what this character thinks about Israeli politics right. or American identity politics. I mean, what's fascinating about the book is that, of course, it's got sort of the most political or it had when it was published, given what had just happened, right. mm -hmm. the most political title you could have as a novel at that moment, certainly as a, in Israel, but I mean, really in, in, in America, too. And, uh, and of course, it's totally, as you say, it's not political at all in the sense that it gives you a way of thinking about the situation in a clear way, right? It's destabilizing. Well, exactly. And I, I mean, I was just thinking about uh, your book in relation to this conversation. One of the things that I realized as I was working on authority and freedom is well, I realized what I think is the answer to questions that people, that critics have asked for generations. What is the politics of Shakespeare? What is the politics of Mozart? What is the politics of Jane Austen? And there's never an answer. Some people say, oh, Jane Austen is a kind of, you know, left liberal because in Mansfield Park, there's stuff about, you know, the father have, being involved with the slave trade. And, you know, is Shakespeare an anti-Semite or not? And people go around. And I realize the reason people go around and around is because they're asking the wrong questions. Mm -hmm. Because these writers, and I think it's true of you writing the Netanyahu's, you're not trying to come to a political conclusion or what you're trying to do is grapple with various forces in the world artistically and leave them or f discover between them a balance that works in terms of the novel or for Mozart, hmm. the opera, and that's it. Yeah. And so they're not the answer to political questions, right. okay? They're, they tell you an enormous amount about life and experience, yeah. Yeah. but not in a way that can be defined as radical or conservative or liberal. Right. They operate a whole other you know, language of discourse and experience. And, and, and I would say that, you know, aside from some of those very entertaining academic articles and books about how politics can be seen 
playing out in the animal kingdom, you know, to, for politics, you need a person, yeah. right? You need a human. Yeah. And, and the idea is, uh, you know, that I always tried to keep in mind with the book, and this is, I think, an idea that you, you always keep in mind with what, like, contemporary critical discourse calls unlikable characters, which I think is just, you know, one of the worst phrases ever, uh, one of the most unlikable phrases ever, is that, you know, anyone who has a politics has a biography mm. that brought them to those politics, right? And, and the more time and you spend with that biography, the more whatever politics seems distasteful maybe to you as a creator, you know, re recedes, you know, and you begin developing the sympathy that you should have for all yeah. men and women, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And, but when you begin with the character, and I mean character in terms of, you know, a novel has characters, but I also mean the, the, the character of a person, mm. right? And when you begin with character and you follow through that character, through its various expressions in different um, contexts of this character's life, you arrive at a much fuller picture of something than the way I think a lot of criticism is done on, on literature, where they begin with politics and then they find the person. They say, you know, tell me who you are and I I'm going to tell you what you believe. Right. And, and that it, it, it's the complete opposite of the way that, that a character not just has to be built on the page, but also how we build our own characters in life. Yeah. Right. Experientially. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I didn't include this in Authority and Freedom, but at some point working on the book, I began to think about the great Delacroix painting, Liberty Leading the People, okay, which, you know, 1830s. So, and this has become the great icon of sort of leftist thinking. And as far as we know, Delacroix's politics was rather on the conservative end. And mm -hmm. this painting has been one of the great, how could that be right. that a man with kind of conservative politics would end up painting this painting? And I realized, okay, so there's this revolution in Paris in 1830, and Delacroix and a friend were walking around the streets of Paris, and he was fascinated by the barricades and just what was going on the streets. He was, as an artist, he was fascinated by looking and seeing what was going on. And then he went in his studio and he painted this painting. And it wasn't like he was saying, oh, well, I'm kind of, we're not exactly clear on his part, but he said, he wasn't just saying, well, I'm kind of a conservative who's becoming kind of a radical. That were not, those were not the issues. No, the issue right. for him, as you say, was in the same way you're talking about experiencing character was he was experiencing things as a man who looks and sees and feels, and he went into his studio and responded. Yeah. And that's what came out. And part of the power of it, and I think this is part of the secret of Greer, is that it doesn't fit into those little neat categories. Right. In the same in the same way that one of the the primary forms of of or maybe not forms, but, but, but worlds of artistic authority in the visual arts has been was the church. Yeah. And you know, there's always this question that you know that I love kind of asking myself, you know, or saying just internally. Not all of these people really could have believed in this shit, could they? Right. You know? Yeah. And of course, you know, they all didn't, right? And the idea of participating in a tradition kind of shorn of your belief in it has always been very attractive to me. Well, you know, in a way, I mean, you know, one of the sort of assumptions now in, I think, all the, you know, humanities about the arts in earlier centuries was that whether you're a painter or you're a Bach, a composer, or you're a poet, you're a servant of the powers that be, whether religious or secular, and you're doing their bidding so that all art becomes kind of subsumed. Hmm. I think more and more you have to flip the equation. The reason the church 
or the king or the prince turns to the artist is because the great artist can do something that, that in fact, escapes from the tight definitions. In other words, a great stained glass window has, a, has a, its own kind of crazy power that, you know, a theological discourse doesn't right, necessarily right. have. So, in fact, I think the, even in those times we thought the artists are sort of the servants, right. I, I think, the, you know, the, the great, you know, commissioners, the popes and princes, they understood the power that these artists sure. had. This is a sort of a weird question, but why in moments like the one that we're in and, and other, I think, heightened or especially tense moments, whether the ecological, political, whatever it is, does it become so hard for people to grant the kind of creativity that you both are describing, whether it's character-driven thinking as opposed to issues-driven thinking to which character is then bootstrapped? Why is that so hard for people to grant to artists? You know what I mean? Like, Because in a way, your book is, is sort of saying, let's let artists be free right, and yeah. in the way that they are. You know, I, Look, I think we... <laughs> We feel desperate. We want answers. We want solutions. And, you know, you know, kind of middle road gray areas, things where there aren't answers seem insufficient. You know, I mean, I've been fascinated by the 1930s, which was a time when people went to, to extremes on the left and the right. And, you know, we forget now, I mean, there was a lot of pushback against abstract art. There was a lot of pushback against 12-tone music in the 30s by many people who'd been interested in it a decade earlier. And I think there was a sense that these are desperate times. We don't want to go and sit listen to some strange sounds. We want something rousing that will get us back, at, you know, on the street with our protestants. I, and I think it's completely understandable, mm. but I think we have to push back. And we have to remember, you know, in people who live in very repressive, under very repressive regimes, often the thing they crave is being able to read a lyric poem mm. or mm. listen to a symphony. Mm. Why is that? If somehow there's something about that that's... Feels liberating, right? Sure. I mean, you know, the, the you know, the in a way the the fight for for freedom in 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 those countries is not the fight to for the freedom to write political poetry right right <laughs> you know and so i you know i i think that we have i mean i agree a lot about the sense of uh urgency but in the face of crisis but i i do think that we have right now maybe an emergency of emergencies hmm. i think that he that in the in this country you know since 911 when you have this idea of a, a constant state of emergency, a constant state of crisis, uh, things become deeply dichotomous. You have the, you know, the great authority of Bush Jr., you know, saying, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. Right. And I think everyone, you know, I think there's a deep internalization of this of, you know, first of all, we have to define the us. Then the us has to, we have to summon our forces because this might be our last chance for X. And I think that there's a, a deep fear of social sanction if you don't uh, participate in this, uh, you know, once in a lifetime fight, whatever this once in a lifetime fight is for. I think there's a sense also of virtue signaling to saying, you know, look at what I've sacrificed. I've sacrificed my freedom of thought or my freedom of speech in order to kind of get in line because the planet is more important than, you know, me. I think that in, in many ways, what there are a lot of things that make this time different from the 30s, but one of the, the things that really strikes me is just the way in which the urgency of messaging 
because of technology, because of the internet, you know, the idea that, that an emergency can be broadcast as loudly and, and as widely as, as ever in human history. And, and that idea of constantly frightening people beyond their resilience, mm -hmm. right? And, and to abandon their resilience and to abandon their belief in something older than this perpetual present, right? right? I think feels very, very shaming to people and mm -hmm. difficult for them to get past. So I'm, I'm not even saying the decision of what an artist creates or the decision of what a person decides to post online. I'm even speaking something very privately when someone's at home and they have to make a decision completely in private about what they want to take in. People have largely internalized that, that message of emergency and, and torture themselves with the need to be relevant in their, in their private lives. Mm. And that mm. seems to me the great tragedy. Mm. When you say relevant in their private lives, you just mean that they even in, they feel they have to participate in a way that's... Yeah, even in their private life, they have to lead their private life in a way that's relevant to the public cause. Right. Meaning, just to, to state the obvious, that participating in a form of expression that isn't somehow directly related to the cause is something they wouldn't permit themselves even in private. Yeah, yeah. They have to read the right books. They have to watch the right things. Right. They have to hear the right things because, uh, because the wrong thing is the thing that is not useful. Right. Right. And of course, much of art is not useful. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, I mean, well, the, the distinction, which is, you know, this ancient philosophic distinction between making and doing yeah. is I think very important and, you know, politicians, you know, political activists do something. Mm -hmm. And I think it's incredibly important. And, and, and I, 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 I think you can make the argument that it's more important at certain moments of emergency than sitting and making something. I think it's, I mean, I, I don't think that's a, a trivial mm. or argument to, to make or right. engage in. But, but do you want to make the decision when? What, what, right. I mean, like, I mean, I think you're absolutely correct that like that at certain points, it's more important to do. Right? right. But I would not want to be in the position of to decide now is the time to do. Right. Well, also, it, there seems to be, again, and I see it I, on the left and uh, the right, there's the, the, the doing argument very easily turns into an attack on making. Right. You know, right, right, right. And right. that's the, and look, look, I mean, you know, there's this always this struggle in, 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 in the public sphere, you know, to, to what extent. Uh, do you have to just lay down a line, you know, the famous, the red line, you know, and say that's where it is? And to what extent can you, do we have to accept the fact that, you know, lines move? And I think the arts are always about sort of lines moving and things shifting. And yeah. I, I think to many honorable people, the ineffableness of the arts, yeah. of all the arts, can seem like a... Uh, a cop out, right. mm. and that's why I mean I I've tried in in this little book of mine to kind of make this argument that that what artists do an artist's vocation is not a matter of mere formal concerns mm -hmm. that I think that what we all too often think of as formal concerns have this enormous resonance. I mean, just think of the idea of beginning, middle, and end mm -hmm. in fiction or in music. Mm -hmm. Okay. The three movements, which is such a classic uh, Western thing. I mean, I mean, kids understand that. You know, right. my my granddaughter. You know, it's like you, you you make a story. It starts. It has a middle. It has an end. You know, there's one point I, I kind of wanted to make though, which I think is lost a lot with this, with a lot of the question of making and doing, 
And I think it's a fundamental, it's another fundamental distinction besides technology between now and maybe the last moment. Yeah. And that's, and that's the institutionalization of most art making in yeah. academia. It, it's the thing that turned being an artist into like a job, yeah. right? right? And, and, and a job has, you know, is, it has to be answerable to, you know, to, to HR departments, right? And it has to be answerable to pay, to payroll and to the, you know, and to the, and to the students, you know, to the students who, who want to learn. And I think that it's that art internalized or art makers of now of, at least within writing, right? Since, since the yeah. founding of Iowa yeah. for over a half yeah. century yeah. have internalized now this idea that there is or should be some hierarchical institutional um, authority that they're going to be laboring under and that they could try and resist it, but it's going to be their only source of economic support. And in a way, in a, in, in a, in a country of shrinking readership, it might be their only readership. Right. And, and it's really these institutions that have flipped this paradigm. What you were talking about earlier, where you were saying, you know, the great patrons, the Esterhazys of this world, the popes of yeah. this world, right? They understood that that the artist had something that they didn't, you right. know, that like they, they had fools on one side and they had artists on the other, right? And that the artist had this power that they wanted. You know, now we're living in an age in which we constantly forget that that our politicians are our employees. They work for us. Right. Yeah. And now all of the artists work for these large schools, which are essentially, you know, hedge funds with classrooms attached. Well, also making, we, we sometimes forget how fundamental making is. I had a very dear friend, a guy who wrote about dance and music for Vogue and the New Yorker Valley for years ago, named David Daniel. He came from the South. His mother had worked in a cotton mill. And he always said to me, you know, somebody who knows how to fix a car, really great auto mechanic, somebody who knows how to make a really good cake, that is the fundamental of understanding what making is. And he made the argument that from that, you could understand what listening to Joan Sutherland sing was like, that, that there was a continuum. And I think, I think what you're saying about the kind of institutionalization mm. of all kinds of you know, created disciplines has cut into that. And so people, people you know, think when they go to the theater or they open a novel, it's like it's this kind of depersonalized product in right. a way, rather than being this thing that that has a relationship to very fundamental things yeah. we do. I mean, I think because, part mm. because this institutionalization of the arts, right. people lose that sense of the of how fundamental. Yeah, I mean, I think these institutions essentially at a very deep and sort of unrecognized level, they are reproductions of a culture that we're lacking. Right. So, you know, when you say that it was about, you know, making a cake or fixing a car, you know, most people, if they're going to learn how to make a cake or fix a car, they're going to learn it from their parents right, exactly. or from, yeah. you know, friends of the family right, from right, around right. there. But when you don't have that, right. right? And this is the horrible place where this enters into like family values and respectability right. politics arguments. But the truth is I've spent a decent amount of time walking into universities and talking to students right. in MFA programs or, you know, and they had, they have holes in their knowledge that I, I you know, I had to stop myself from saying, you know, you, you should have read that as a kid or no, no, or, or like someone, your parents should have taught you that earlier, right, yeah, you know? Yeah. And when yeah. you encounter enough of it, right? It's anecdotal, yeah, you know, yeah. for, to a certain point, but when you encounter enough of it, you realize that like we've created these institutions, most of which, you know, are for profit mm -hmm. that essentially are there to give you that fundamental backdrop that was both your democratic right and your responsibility mm. as a child. I mean, this speaks to this question that I noticed certainly in the visual arts that I do not feel 
that uh, one way to put it is that they seem much more fragmented. It's very difficult to identify movements yeah. or it feels very difficult to identify movements. Right now. It's very possible to identify discrete talent yeah. and great artists. But the idea that a group of artists would band together, like they did the Artist League or something like that, and say, now we all believe we want to follow the credo of art for art's sake or whatever it is, mm -hmm. that seems far away. And that also seems to be tied to institutions of, of, of various kinds coming in and actually careerifying art in some way that makes it much more about you and your career and not you and a body of creative people working together. Well, I think the, econom the economics of the creative life have never been easy, never, but they're sure not easy today. I mean, just, you know, I mean, the, I mean, part of the problem, I think where we see uh, in, a, in this country, and I'm sure it's true, you know, in Europe and, you know, South Korea, Japan is it, it's harder to just live a middle-class life. I mean, it's more expensive to live a middle-class life. And let's face it, Bohemia since the 19th century has been a kind of subset of the, of some kind of middle, middle class, class yeah, or sure. your lower, you know, kind yeah. of clinging on to the middle class and just, you know, what apartments cost in New York. And mm -hmm. I mean, the arts are waste, you know, there's a lot of stuff, time and energy and mm -hmm. has to be spent to get generate something small and precious. Yeah. I mean, one of the conundrums of this country, and I just worried, wondered about this for decades, is this is a phenomenally wealthy country. And yet we keep hearing that symphony orchestras, theater, uh, dance troops, publishing houses are strangling for lack of money. Right. And, you know, the funny thing is compared with the kind of money you have in America now, it doesn't take much money to, to do these things. I mean, a lot of what we think was the great patrons and patronesses of modernism, people like Peggy Guggenheim and John Quinn, these people didn't, the, the amounts of money they spent were rather small. Right. It's, it's immensely troubling. And I, mm. I, I think part, part of what's hard for us is, and I think this may be what um, makes it hard for people with money to kind of think about how they can help is, it's so all or nothing here. To, to me, the, the arts are, um, there's, there's so many different levels and nooks and crannies and byways uh, along with the highways. And I think we're a, a win or lose society and we, we, we don't, we, we're not able to, to think in terms of people like, um, you know, Gertrude Stein wasn't just interested in Picasso. Sure. She was interested in all kinds of people. Sure. Um, there are all kinds of Ameri you know, writers who arrived there and got encouragement. And um, there's a, you know, an odd writer, uh, art critic Robert Coates, who mm -hmm. knew her in the 20s in Paris. And I was just re recently reading some little memoir he wrote. He, um, uh, he wrote a, a, his first novel was called The Eater of Darkness. It's sometimes regarded as the first surrealist novel in English. Mm -hmm. anyway, but Stein helped him. I mean, she right. helped him get that novel, which he did, he wrote it. He didn't even think it would ever get published. Right. Um, and I, and I think partly was like, it, it wasn't exactly about there's the winner and the loser. It was about a kind of complete cultural atmosphere, uh, with all different kinds of things mm. going on. And, you know, some of the things you think at the time are rather little turn out 50 or hundred years later to loom very large. You know, if we go back a little bit to the earlier part of the conversation and think for both of you, but maybe starting with you, Jed, what 
if you were looking at, let's say, the next decade to come, you know, and not thinking about what you think will happen, but what you would want to happen in terms of not what is being made, but simply in terms of how making is being treated societally or how people are thinking about or interacting with makers. I'd be very curious to hear that vision because I feel it's really important to have those visions as opposed to only being trapped by where we find ourselves, you know? I always hope for, for more of a sort of small is beautiful hmm. cultural world. And over the years, I've, you know, when I hear about an interesting curator in an odd place, I've certainly, at the, my years at the New Republic, when I you know, kind of shaped the arts coverage mm, mm. completely by myself, I really made an effort to go and kind of give a bit of a spotlight to things like that. What, off the beaten path. A little bit it? off the beaten path, or just somebody at a kind of mid-level museum who was doing, who, who would kind of figure out how to do something. I find it also, I'm very, I find it, I have over the years found it very depressing that, you know, smaller institutions tend to copycat bigger institutions in terms of what they mm-hmm. buy. So, you know, you kind of would go anywhere and see what you'd seen in Soho that which was, of course, where the galleries were for many, you know, whatever you'd seen in Soho, somehow there it was out in wherever you went or a, a kind of mini version of it. So, I mean, I, I would hope that, you know, somehow more careers, kind of people who start could kind of flourish in a small way and mm. kind of evolve over decades again. And that goes to this whole question of the, the, the very difficult economics of of being any kind of creative person. I, when I see something small going on, I may not even be very sympathetic to some of the aesthetic involved maybe, or some of the art, but I'm just happy right. that it's going on in right. that mm. way. Right. And that there's a kind of sincerity. Somebody believes in this particular thing. And I'm like, well, I don't really believe agree. in it myself. But you're starting at the ground yeah. Do you have, um, I'm just curious if you have feelings about that, Josh, uh, sort of. Of the future? Yeah, I mean, I know you have feelings about the future and they're pretty bleak, but I don't want to hear those necessarily. You want something positive? No, no, I, mean, I don't. I don't actually want to know what it's going to be like. Okay. You know, I would rather hear, and it doesn't need to even need to be a future, but is yeah. there, let's put it this way, is there a cultural milieu that you think about as being ideal, right? Whether that's the patronage model, whether that is the 50 publishing in the 50s and 60s and it's oh like, we're talking about i mean if we're talking about economics i don't you know like what is it it's the beethoven thing it's just a place that a warehouse to which he can bring his scores and then they just give him what he needs to live and he goes home i mean that's the you know so when he and then when he goes home he takes out the eroica and you know erases the napoleon dedication you know and i'll show them you know i i no, i mean look i i think you know what i really honestly hope for is, I mean, there's a negative way to put it, a positive way to put it, but the, you know, the, the negative way is the idea that, you know, all these people who say, uh, get in line behind the emergency and, and you have to be in service of the cause. I hope that in the future, they'll realize that the truest way to be in the service of the cause is to stop trying to make anything at all. So it just clears the field for the people who want to make stuff. But really, I think that the most important thing is, is, is the milieu that makes the most sense to me is someone who would make what they make not just if they didn't get paid for it, but they would do it at the threat of their lives. Right. You know, right. they do it because they, because they have to, because it provides them a life and it provides them a meaning mm. and that the business, it's all bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. Right. And um, 
you know, those people, I think, you know, Jed puts it like those people are, you know, they exist, they have existed, they They will will continue to exist, but it's a history and a story of individuals. And, and those people just, they don't need anything to be done for them. Right. Right. I mean, the problem with them, as anyone who's had a relationship with them would know, is that they're complete unto themselves. Right. Yeah, no, but I think what resonated there, I mean, in general, is just that when you have um, mission-oriented making, right, or cause-oriented making, you also have an influx suddenly of all these makers, right, all these Mm -hmm. people who suddenly are able to participate in that making process, when, of course, what you really want is the field to be clear so that there's a little less noise that the people who need to be making, who are participating in that tradition, Mm -hmm. of which there are only ever a handful Mm -hmm. in any generation. I mean, that's just a fact. It's not like suddenly one generation is going to come along and produce a thousand times more excellent artists, right? Mm-hmm. In any medium, that sounds highly unlikely to me that those will be heard and I seen. Mean, there's, you know, the culture of sort of quantification is, I think, so dangerous. You know, I think culture changes, culture evolves, taste evolves in these very elusive ways. Mm-hmm. And when you're constantly being told, oh, well, this is less popular than this, it's very hard to, to, to navigate that. You know, I mean, one of the things, you know, crazy things that's happened in the book world is everybody it used to be that it was never quite clear what a book sold. You know, it was right. sort of a first novel would get a couple of interesting reviews and sell 500 copies. Right. And, but nobody knew. And then the editor would say, oh, well, it's, there's been a lot of interest about it. And you would go on. Right. But now everybody in the book business can Notice look it. at these figures mm-hmm. and say, it's dead. It doesn't, this person is over. Right, well, right. what would have happened to James Joyce if, you know, in that kind of, I mean, yeah. we forget that yeah. Ulysses. Probably the same thing the... that happened to James Joyce. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, that, but I mean, I think that's the point. It's, you know, the, like. That may be true right, too, right? Yeah, uh, I, I, it would have been privately printed. It would have been right. privately printed. Right, right. right. Um, I'm going to thank you both for being here today. Thank you. It was really fun to chat. So thank you. Thanks, Jed. Thanks, Josh. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing it. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.